So I bring you this morning to a very lovely and beautiful story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. I invite you to turn there with us this morning and read along. If you didn't bring a Bible today, you might find one under the seat in front of you. In Luke chapter 7, it's page 1,189. beautiful, important story. Let's pray. Lord, as we sang, we do pray for revival. We pray that you would reach this country. We pray that you would reach this world. And we know that you do that through your people. So I pray, Lord, that we'd be motivated to be your witnesses, to live for you gratefully. Thrilled, Lord, to live for you. Pray that you would show us the proper reason for serving you this morning. Bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I was growing up, my family would celebrate our birthday dinners at Red Lobster. We loved Red Lobster. Big seafood family, and that was a big treat for us. Uh, We'd get dressed up. We'd go enjoy that time. On one occasion, my brother Rusty, I think he was maybe 10 years old, he was struggling with one of those king crab legs, trying to crack it open, getting a little frustrated. Eventually, he just, he snapped it, and the piece of meat went flying through the air, landed on a table next to us, right in somebody's water glass, plop. It was an interruption to the meal, needless to say, and everyone in the actual area saw it, and so it was this big distraction, especially when they threw it back at us and there was a big food fight. No, I'm kidding, that didn't really happen. (laughs) But I'll never forget that crab flying through the air. This chapter, this passage that I've taken you to this morning, takes you to a very special dinner very important special dinner with a big-time interruption to it. Let's read it. Look at verse 36. It says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears, wipe them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So a Pharisee, 
invites Jesus over to his house for dinner. The name of this Pharisee is Simon, as you're going to find out later. And I want you to picture this dinner in your mind. This was not a private dinner between just Simon and Jesus. It was a very public dinner. This Pharisee was a prominent member of his city. Everyone would have known him. He's wealthy, influential. And he would have invited all of his other Pharisee friends to this dinner, all of the local celebrities, the movers and shakers, the influencers. Everybody would have been there. The A-list team would have been invited. And they would have been excited to be there because Jesus was invited and he had accepted their invitation. And there was a lot of buzz about Jesus at that time. People were very interested in him. And so everyone was excited to be there. Now, as you know, the Pharisees would eventually despise Jesus, hate Jesus, oppose him. But at this point, it's early on in the public ministry of Jesus. So at this point, they're sort of investigating Jesus. They're sizing him up. He's been invited not out of sheer goodwill, but Uh, The people are curious, and there's a curiosity and a building hostility towards Jesus. They're checking him out. And Jesus knew that when he was invited, but he still accepted the invitation. So picture this big dinner that's taking place. This Pharisee was wealthy, as most of the spiritually elite were. He had a big house, had a big, no doubt, open courtyard with a nice garden and fountain in it. And this dinner would have taken place out in that courtyard. A table was set up in a U formation. It would have been real low to the ground, and everybody around the table would have been reclining at the table. They didn't sit at the table. They reclined on these couches. So they're leaning forward, weight on left elbow, taking food with right hand. Feet out behind you, legs out behind you, bare feet on the couch. So picture that scene, the candlelight, the servants, all the food, everybody having this dinner. Now, in those days, this is very interesting, people who were not invited to the dinner could draw near to the dinner. They could actually come and observe what was going on at a public dinner like this. And so oftentimes, many people would come and sit around the perimeter on the wall of the courtyard. Some would even come into the courtyard, and they could get close in. And and that was allowable because people were drawing near to get the pearls of wisdom from all the influencers, right? They'd listen in. Today, we listen to influential people talk about the issues of the day on the radio, on TV, or maybe you have your podcast. In those days, people got their news and listened to people at these public events and public dinners. And I believe there were a lot of people in that courtyard. I believe there were a big crowd because Jesus was there and he was going to be interacting with these Pharisees. So picture that big scene, big dinner, big deal. Then all of a sudden, an interruption. A woman slips in. 
She's probably been sitting on the outskirts of the perimeter. She comes up behind Jesus. Verse 38, it says, she stood at his feet behind him weeping. So here's, she begins to weep. Now this is the Greek word klio, which means big time weeping, big time. This isn't just a few tears. This is, she's sobbing. She's mourning. The tears are just flowing. She lets loose with what Luther called heart water. And it bursts out of her eyes as if the emotional dam is broken into pieces and the flood begins. It just pours out of her. Creates a scene. Everybody's looking that direction. Then it says that she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. So you picture she, now she leans down and with all those tears begins to wash the feet of Jesus. And then she lets down her hair. Nobody. That was a, a grave act of impropriety in those days. Jewish women did not let down their hair in public. In fact, some of the rabbis told men, you could divorce your wife if she ever did that. But she lets down her hair. Why? Because she doesn't have a towel. She's washed the feet of Jesus, and she wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair. It says then she's, she kissed the feet of Jesus. Repeatedly kissed the feet of Jesus. Picture that scene. And then she anointed the feet of Jesus with fragrant oil. Expensive oil. So most of the Jewish women in those days, they had a little necklace and there was an alabaster flask that they'd hang around their necks filled with very expensive perfume. And that's what she's done. She's broken this out and she's anointed his feet. You imagine how everybody just sort of stopped and watched? And here's what's amazing. We're told in verse 37, Behold a woman in the city who was a sinner. She was a notorious sinner. She had a reputation. Everyone knew this woman. You read between the lines here. She's the town harlot. She's the sexually immoral woman. She's dirty. Everyone knew her reputation. And here she is, touching the feet of Jesus. Kissing the feet of Jesus. Anointing the feet of Jesus. And Jesus, the perfect son of God, mind you, is allowing this. Receiving all of that affection. He doesn't kick her away. I mean, you look at this, and this, this is scandalous. People were shocked. Simon's reaction, we're given it in verse 39, he spoke to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. So 
Simon doesn't say anything out loud, but this is what he's thinking. In his heart, he's disgusted. We came to investigate Jesus. We invited him. He's no prophet. If he were a prophet, he'd know what manner of woman this was. Do you see the absolute disdain that he had for that sinful woman? He's disgusted with that sinful woman. He's disgusted that Jesus would allow, allow a woman like that to touch him. I'm certain all of the other religious folks sitting around that table probably thought the same thing. Everybody was watching. Every, I mean, this is bizarre. This is crazy. I, I know there was a long, awkward silence. And Jesus needed to explain what was going on. He had to let them know. So verse 40. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. I love that. Real quiet. Simon, I think you have some questions in your mind, right? I think you want some explanation here. Well, I'm... I have something to say to you. And I see Simon sort of with a sneer go, yeah, you have a lot to explain here. Speak on. And Jesus tells a story, verse 41. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? So it's a simple, simple story. Two guys are in debt. They owe money to the same person. One guy owes 50 denarii. One guy owes 500 denarii. Now think of denarii in terms of wages. The skilled worker in that day made about one denarii every day. So one guy owes about two months worth of wages. The other guy owes a year and four months worth of wages. They can't pay. So this guy forgives them both. What if somebody forgave your car loan? Would you like that? That'd be cool. What if somebody forgave your house mortgage? Wow probably be even more pleased. So Jesus tells the story and then he turns to Simon and says, Simon, who do you think loves the creditor more? Verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. So here's the principle. Here's the principle that that Jesus is trying to communicate through this story. And it's very simple. Even Simon can see it. They both agreed. Here's the principle. The one who loves the most is the one who's been forgiven the most. Or I want you to think about it like this this morning. Those who experience and receive the greatest amount of forgiveness They love the most. 
Those who feel and know that forgiveness of God for their sin. To the greatest degree, love the most. And so then Jesus points out how that principle had been in operation at that dinner. Look at verse 44. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What that woman did for Jesus at that public dinner seemed to be an absolutely scandalous thing. But please understand, the bigger scandal was what Simon failed to do for Jesus. In those days, common courtesies were extended for people who were invited over to your home for dinner. Common courtesy. When you showed up at someone's house, you've been invited for dinner, they would wash your feet. A servant would wash your feet. Kind of like today, can I take your coat? Customary. A servant would be there. Everyone walked in sandals. It was dusty. Their feet were dirty. The servant would wash the feet. Jesus did not get his feet washed. Simon didn't do that. And you got to wonder if maybe some of the other guests that showed up, if they got their feet washed, but Jesus didn't. So the woman washed his feet with her tears. When you came over to someone's house for dinner, they greeted you warmly at the door with a kiss on the cheek. Good to see you. Jesus didn't get any kiss. Simon didn't receive Jesus like that, but this woman kissed his feet. When you showed up at somebody's place for dinner, when you were an invited guest and something, when you got there, they anointed your head with oil. In those days, it was very dry. It was refreshing to have oil on your head, and that was customary greeting. Welcome, come on in. Nobody anointed the head of Jesus. So this woman anointed his feet. Not with the usual olive oil, but with the most expensive oil. What Jesus is saying, this woman, she's the one who owed 500 denarii in the story. This woman has experienced forgiveness to a greater degree. And she's loved much. And that is exactly what had happened. God had forgiven that woman of her sins. 
In fact, notice in verse 47, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. That's actually in the perfect tense in the Greek, meaning that it was forgiven in the past and remains forgiven. It could read, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And so most scholars believe that Jesus had met this woman earlier, perhaps right even before that meal. And she'd come to him, broken. She knew how sinful she was. Everyone knew how sinful she was. She came to Jesus, and Jesus received her, forgave her. All of her sins were washed away. And she's so filled with love and gratefulness. This is her expression. She comes and she washes his feet like that. Now, I'll tell you what, man. There are people who really ruin their lives. And they get involved in all kinds of... But I'll tell you, when they come to Christ, when they come to Christ and they get the sin removed, oh, there's a change. There's a gratefulness. Jesus says, Simon, that woman experienced a greater forgiveness. And then Jesus is publicly rebuking Simon. Simon, you represent the guy who was forgiven 50 denarii. Your love is little because you've been forgiven little. Simon didn't love Jesus. Simon didn't have enough respect or love for Jesus to even extend the basic courtesies of the day for welcoming somebody into your home. Simon, you love little because you've been forgiven little. And you know why you've been forgiven little? Because you think your sin is little. You see yourself as a little sinner. And that really was, that was Simon. You know, he's a Pharisee. He gets to wear the religious robes. He's the religious man. He keeps all these laws. He doesn't hang out with people like that woman. He looks down on people. Simon never saw himself as a big sinner. As a little sinner. The woman saw herself as a big sinner. So understand, there are two sinners in this story. There's the person who knows they're sinful. Knows it to the core. Feels it. And gets forgiven. And appreciates it. And then pours out extravagant love back upon you. And then there's the person like Simon who doesn't see themselves as a big sinner. They're a little sinner. And they never appreciate any forgiveness of their sin. In fact, the worst possible sinner, the most unredeemable of all, is the one who thinks he's not a sinner and doesn't need redemption. The one who thinks that God is pleased with him the way he is. That's the worst of sinners. And I will tell you, 
There are a lot of people like that. There are a lot of people in the church. You know, a lot of people that maybe they've even grown up in the church and they kind of take the gospel for granted. And they've been saved and they're grateful and they know they're saved. But, you know, they were little sinners. Forgiven little. And and it shows in the way you serve Christ. Lots of people, lots of examples. You remember the story of the prodigal son? Remember that story? The younger son is the notorious sinner of the story, right? Takes his dad's money, squanders it, goes away. Just a blatant sinner. Blows it. Eventually comes home, right? Dad receives him back. Oh, can you imagine the grace that that young son felt? Well, he comes home and remember the older brother's there. Now, the older brother had never left, but you find out he was a pretty mean dude. He's a self-righteous. Just like the Pharisee would look down in disgust upon that woman, so he looked down on disgust upon his younger brother. The younger brother comes home and he says, Dad, why are you receiving that guy back? Why haven't I been blessed? I've never left. I've been here all along. I've slaved for you year after year after year. He's a sinner too. In fact, somebody said, the elder brother was further from his father than the younger brother ever was, even though the elder brother never left the farm. And there are a lot of people just like that. Don't be like that. How would we apply this to our lives individually as Christians? Well, listen, it's very, very important that we never forget what Christ has done for us. And that we never lose sense of this profound sinfulness that we've been saved from. Listen, we talk about 50 denarii, 500 denarii. I actually believe that all of us are guilty of about 500 million denaries. We're all sinful. We've all blown it. Now, sure, you might look around in society and find people that have made unwise decisions and sort of explored their depravity more than others. Yeah, there's all kinds of people who have blown it. We see them. But don't think that that makes you any better than them. If everyone could see your heart, your thoughts, your past, your secrets. Now, we have all sinned. We are all guilty. And we should be profoundly aware of that as Christians. And then we should remember each and every day what Jesus did to forgive us of all that. How God loves us. He sent his son and Jesus was sent and he gave his life. Crucified on the cross 
By the shed blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. The, the pit that all of us were in and how God went into that pit and saved each and every one of us from the pit of hell and ugliness and sin. Jesus did that for you. Never lose sight of that. Never lose the impact of that. That's what motivates you. That's what encourages you. If you forget that, you lose it. And to the extent that you keep that mindset, that's what motivates you to serve the Lord. To be a witness. You know, I think many of us as Christians, we know what needs to be done. We know what God has required of us. We know that we're to be witnesses. We've been talking a lot about over the last several weeks. We're to be witnesses for Christ. We're to be his men and women. We are to serve. We're We're to go for it. Why don't we do it? Because we've forgotten. We've forgotten. How profoundly wonderful and amazing our salvation is. I mean, even as a born-again Christian, I don't care how long you've been as a Christian, never forget, Paul the Apostle, who I think was one of the most successful, fruitful Christians who ever lived, at the end of his life, the last letter that he wrote, called himself the chief of all sinners. You keep that. You never lose sight of that. It's why that woman loved Jesus so extravagant. Let me ask you, when's the last time you loved Jesus like that? Extravagantly, over the top, in a way where other people would look and go, hmm. Why do you serve at church? Why do you do what you do? Why do you not do what you should do? You know, there was a church that Paul the Apostle founded early in the part of church history. It's called the Church of Ephesus. And that church grew for a lot during the first 100 years of church history. In fact, it was still around in the days of John the Apostle. When John was an older man, Paul had passed on. And if you remember, in the book of Revelation, Jesus wrote a letter to that local church in Ephesus. Now, remember, this church has been around for a long time. And, and if you read that letter, it's, it's filled with Christians who are busy. They love serving. They're a part of it. They're protecting doctrine. Everything's great. I mean, they're... They're busy. They look like a real healthy church. But you remember Jesus wrote to them. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first work. So you see, it's possible to get really busy and be a Christian for a long time and you lose your first love. And you know why you lose your first love? You lose your sense 
of what God has done for you. You you lose that raw emotion of the fact that you were saved. And I would say to you, don't lose that. Live every day remembering what Christ has done for you. Macaulay Water Street Mission was named for Jerry Macaulay, a man who was born in Ireland in 1839. His father, a counterfeiter, fled home to escape the law, and Jerry never knew his dad. His mother evidently languished in prison, and the boy was raised by his grandmother. When she couldn't control him, he was sent to New York, where he lived under the docks, drinking, fighting, and stealing from boats. In 1857, he was caught and sent to Sing Sing Penitentiary. Sing Sing inmates were forced to live in unbroken silence in cell blocks five tiers high. Each cell was a little coffin, three feet wide, six feet high, seven feet long. It was wet in the summer, icy in winter, always grim. There was no plumbing, just buckets. Cells never disinfected, filled with vermin, lice, fleas, and fractions were punished by flogging, the iron collar, or the shower bath in which prisoners were repeatedly drowned and revived. One Sunday, Macaulay was herded into the chapel with the rest of the prisoners. He was moody, miserable, until he glanced on the platform and recognized a well-known prize fighter, guy by the name of Orville Gardner, a boxer. The boxer told of finding Jesus, and Macaulay listened attentively. He soon began reading the Bible page after page, day after day in his little cell. He read it through twice. Then in great agony, he fell to his knees, but jumped up immediately in embarrassment. He did this several times. Finally, one night, resolving to kneel until he found forgiveness, he prayed and prayed. All at once, it seemed something supernatural was in my room, he said. I was afraid to open my eyes. The tears rolled off my face in great drops, and these words came to me. My son, thy sins, which are many, are forgiven. He was gloriously reborn again. He was released in 1864, having been incarcerated seven of his 26 years. He devoted himself to rescuing other incorrigibles. Twenty years later, on September 18, 1884, the huge Broadway tabernacle was packed for his funeral with multitudes flooding surrounding streets. His Water Street Mission, a pioneer among America's rescue missions, has been a haven of hope for over a hundred years. There's a guy who got saved gloriously by the Lord Jesus Christ, who reached into the cell, impacted him, changed him, spent the rest of his life loving Jesus extravagantly, reaching out to others in Jesus' name. You and I 
may not have had an experience like that guy, but we've all been in that cell. A cell of sin and defeat, ugliness. And Jesus has reached in. And don't you ever forget. And let it motivate you every day. Let's ask God to help us with that. Bow your heads with me. Lord, I pray for those of us who have been members of the church for a long time, those who have been serving you for a long time. Oh, Lord, I pray that they would never become old. Remind us each and every day of your great love for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would love you extravagantly, serve you, because we love you. Lord, I pray for those who know you but have sort of slipped away, walked away. Remind them. Lord, bring them back. Lord, remind us why we do the things we do. And then, Father, I want to pray for anyone here this morning who has not had their sins forgiven. Maybe you're here this morning and you have lived an excessively sinful life. Maybe you've destroyed a lot of things in your life. And you're hurting. And maybe the Lord brought you here and you're wondering, is there hope? Jesus will wash away your sins. He'll give you a brand new start. The blood of Christ washes away all sin. Have you placed your faith in him? Start over afresh. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're the one that just always thought you were religious. You've been good enough. You've been better than other people. You've had a kind of a little view of your sin. Well, I hope it increased more. So you can know how much God has done for you that your sin might be forgiven and your sin is great. But the grace of God is greater. Maybe you need to get your sins forgiven and you do that through faith in Christ Jesus. I'd like to lead you in a prayer if that's you, if you've not received him. Do so right now. The Lord Jesus is right in our midst. Ready to save. He died for you and he rose again. If that's you, pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I invite you to be my savior. I admit my sinfulness. My sinfulness is great. Reach down into this dark pit that I'm in and grab my life and redeem me. Save me, forgive me. Fill me with your spirit and and help me to follow you with the right motivation for the rest of this life.
change my life. Do that miracle in my life. Forgive me. Amen.